0: We've got news for you, Songcraft fans. Live music is officially back, and the multi-platinum chart-topping band Shinedown is hitting the road this spring for the Revolutions Live Tour.
1: Not only that, but they'll be joined by special guests and fellow chart-toppers Three Days Grace and From Ashes to New. This is a show no hard rock fan is going to want to miss.
0: So check tour dates to see where they're playing near you and get your tickets now at livenation.com.
1: Welcome to SongCraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And
0: I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Times Like These by Foo Fighters. Featuring our guest on this episode of SongCraft, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Chris Shifley. Best known for his work in Foo Fighters, Chris Shiflet is a punk veteran, Americana and rock songwriter, modern-day guitar hero, and an artist who's been blurring the lines between genres for more than 25 years. Chris is an alum of California-based punk rock bands No Use for a Name and Me First and the Gimme Gimmes, as well as his own projects, Jackson United and Chris Shiflet and the Dead Peasants named Americana's biggest rock star by Rolling Stone, Chris balances his full band projects with a thriving solo career. The 12-time Grammy-winning rock and roll hall of famer's forthcoming country album and his third as a solo artist is called Lost at Sea,
1: Part 1. Well Scott, uh today we've got a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a while. We got to talk with Chris Shiflet, the guitarist of one of my favorite bands, Foo Fighters. Yep. Um, and what people might not know about Chris is that over the last few years, he's put out a number of solo albums that are basically country music. Yeah. Yeah, um, he's you know, got a huge love for country music. Yeah, we know him from the heavy rock stuff, um, but he's been putting out this great country music. And it got me thinking, you know, Chris is not the first rock star to uh, make a venture into country music or, right. or someone from any other genre. We even saw like Ray Charles, uh, I think was one of the first one that we might think of uh, with his modern sounds of country and Western music. Am I saying that right? Modern sounds? Modern
0: sounds in country and Western music. That's right, great album. A and, great album. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it, not necessarily a country album, but all country songs, And Ray really widened the audience of country music and, and kind of made country music more respectable in some ways in the eyes of people who dismissed it or thought it was simplistic or it wasn't sophisticated music. And, and he, you know, did his Ray Charles thing and their strings and, and, you know, suddenly people were going, Oh, I really like these country songs. Um, So yeah, he, he's definitely an important pioneer, I think in, 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 crossing genres for sure
1: you know and a lot of them we look and we see okay well cheryl Crow made a country record yeah and that doesn't seem like too far of a leap there's always right. been kind of a rootsy element to her music jewel did the same thing yeah i think you know when aaron lewis from stained made a country record it seemed <laughs> like well that seems like
0: right that, yeah that seems that's, like a leap that's different
1: yeah, yeah. uh stephen tyler right made a country record yeah which i'll confess i haven't heard
0: yeah i remember hearing one of the songs uh from that record which which i thought was pretty good um one of the things that I find kind of interesting is that like Chris Shiflett, came from a punk background yeah. and, you know, then kind of got into more like straight ahead rock and roll, then got into to country. Um, it's weird how many like punk artists kind of wind up getting into country. There's yeah. like, you know, social distortion or X, or there's these bands where there's kind of this through line that connects punk and, and country music. And like Dwight Yoakam was a big, uh, he was kind of big on the LA punk scene. Yeah. Um, so I feel like yeah. Johnny
1: Cash is, is the connective tissue. Yeah. There there's like something that.
0: about that, that spirit or that, you know, the, the idea of, you know, doing things your own way, yeah. scrappy rough around the edges. And, um, but uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, there's been, I think a lot of artists have maybe come at it from, from different directions. Um, Um, you know, maybe for some, it was a cynical kind of like, well, maybe I'll try my hand in this genre now, but you know, Chris has this, this real love of, um, of country music. In fact, I produced a box set a few years ago called the Bakersfield sound. Hmm. Uh, If anyone out there needs 10 CDs worth of extremely obscure, (laughs) uh, hardcore country music from Bakersfield, California, (laughs) (laughs) that's your, that's probably your best bet. Um, it's probably the, 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 the one-stop shop for all your Bakersfield sound needs. But Chris wrote the, the forward. Um, I asked him to write the forward for, uh, for the book as a 200 yeah. and something page book that comes along with it uh, and uh, and he left to the chance like he just loves you know wow. it's, country music is is in his bones.
1: Well I think that's uh, an important distinction to make you know even when we talked about the Ray Charles record uh, there's a difference between making a record that's out of kind of homage or uh, appreciation for the art form Versus even making a transition to country, right? uh, which I don't think that's what Chris is doing. That's certainly not what Ray Charles did. Um, It's a little bit more like what Darius Rucker did, which is a a total transition into this is what I do now. And as far as those transitions go, I think Darius Rucker might be the most successful one where he's, he's a bona fide country artist now.
0: Yeah, I mean, Hootie and the Blowfish was a huge band yes. in the '90s, and he he actually I think he did kind of an R and B record after that. He was looking for yeah <laughs> he was looking for what was going to be next, and when he did country. um yeah, the, the dude is, like, he's been incredibly successful. Yeah. I mean, Wagon Wheel is is probably known to everybody, whether they listen to country music or not. Um, but he's had a ton of number ones. He's really made uh, quite a career in, in country music. And I have a theory about that. Um, I think people in the 90s who just kind of had the radio on, they heard... Uh, the Hootie and the Blowfish stuff. They knew yeah. those songs. His voice is familiar. You know, you yeah. hear him. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you heard a Hootie record in the 90s that you hadn't heard, you're like, oh, I know who this is, yeah. you know, based on his voice. Um, and then you know people they they grow up, they go to college, they get married, they have kids. Now you're driving the minivan, you're still the person who kind of wants to have the radio on, yeah but you don't want your kids hearing maybe some of the stuff that's coming on the radio station that you used to listen to. yeah So, you start flipping over to the country station because all right, I don't
1: have to worry about what the kids are hearing. You don't want anything as heavy and threatening as Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> Let's get it over to the drinking We're the cheating. Know. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> uh but no, I think there's something like to that, and then it's like yeah. you you you've got the kids in the car, and like oh, I know this voice, and and it feels familiar. It feels yeah. like you know you're connected to it already,
1: and it and it feels authentic when he does it somehow, and I, and I don't, yeah. I can't put my finger on what it is that that does or doesn't, and and what Chris is doing feels deeply authentic. Yeah, and yeah. I and I think with with Shiflet, what what you're seeing there is a man exploring all of his influences, right? Um, which I think we need to allow our favorite artists to do. We need to understand. It's like we talk with Robert DeLeo from Stone Temple Pilots where he's talking about having you know Bossa Nova influences as he's putting this music together and you go what really I thought you were only listening to Led Zeppelin well no Um, and these are our favorite artists you know there's a lot that goes into making them who they are and it's fun to see Chris uh, exploring that side and doing it really well yeah Um, you know Com- compared to some as you mentioned th- there are there are times when a genre shift seems a tad cynical and I don't want to say Brett Michaels out loud um, <laughs> but there are times when it does seem that way but um, but what Chris is doing and I think particularly because it's based in a lot of it's based in this kind of West Coast country feel right um, which is not it's not a commercial yeah. slick country land grab yeah. type of thing here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think he's just kind of pursuing what he, he wants to pursue because he loves the music and, you know, some of his stuff is very Bakersfield honky tonk. Some of it's, you know, a little more like contemporary country, but I think he just likes doing what he wants to do, yeah. um, which is cool. And like you say, just letting artists express themselves um, and, and, you know, make the music that they want to make wherever that goes. Um, is a cool thing. So, um, obviously being Nashville guys, uh, we're all for people exploring their country music roots. Um, so who else, Here's a question for you. Who from like a, a big rock band, would you like to hear what they would do with with a country record?
1: Um, wow. You kind of put me on the spot right now.
0: Uh, I I know you're a big Pearl Jam fan. Can you imagine Eddie Vedder doing a country no, record. <laughs> I
1: no, I can't either. I can't. Um, I mean, but if you asked me a while back, could I imagine Robert Plant doing anything like what he did with Alison Krauss? I would have said the same thing. I That's a good I could point. not have imagined that. Yeah. Uh, it was And that imp-
0: was, the, that first, both the records are good, but that first yeah. one that they did is unbelievable. It's
1: unbelievable. And the second one is basically just like a, a you know, little brother of the, of the first record. <laughs> right. it's, it's very much the same record. As far as, you know, one that I would like, that I would really like to hear, um, Man, that's tough. I don't know that I have, um, I don't know that I have that level of creativity in my brain to think of, of who might do it. Um,
0: well, and I ask you because I didn't have an answer myself, <laughs> so uh, that's you know it's, a, it's you, a daunting prospect. You talk about um, Steven Tyler from Aerosmith yeah. having done a a country record. You remember that um, song uh, "What It Takes." Uh yeah. there goes my old girlfriend. Yeah. There's another diamond ring. Country I always song. thought that was a country yeah. song. I mean, that was a that was Aerosmith way before, but I'm like, man, a country artist, and maybe they have, but yeah. like that could be a great country You writer.
1: know who I'd like to hear do it? I, I thought of it. Paul Rogers from Bad Company.
0: Okay, interesting choice.
1: And and it's because I, I don't want to hear someone I don't you know, if Freddie Mercury was still alive, I don't want to hear Freddie Mercury do a a country record because it's <laughs> it would be such a departure. Right. But Paul Rogers already has that bluesy grit to his voice. I think he could handle it credibly. I don't think it would sound like he's putting on a costume. Right. And that's what I don't want to hear is somebody putting on a costume. Right.
0: Right. And that's why you don't let your girls go trick or treating. um, And you tell them that they're getting no candy this year because daddy doesn't want to hear you putting on your costume. If they do
1: it, I need to have my hands over my ears. I don't want to hear that costume.
0: No, no. You need a quiet costume, young lady.
1: (laughs) Dad gets real mad over real weird stuff. I'm usually pretty laid back, but the sound of a costume set me off. (laughs) God forbid you want to be a bag of leaves. The smell of a mask.
2: (laughs) Part two.
0: Chris, welcome to Songcraft.
2: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's great to speak with you. Um, Your most recent single is Blacktop White Lines. From a forthcoming album called Lost at Sea, uh, which um yeah. Jaron Johnston produced. And Jaron has been a guest on this show and is is not only uh, the front man for the great band Cadillac Three, but he's also like just a monster hit songwriter in the mainstream country world. Yeah. And, you know, I hear that influence on Black Top White Lines and, and it doesn't sound uh, Like your previous stuff, and you've called it uh, a left turn in terms of you know your musical direction.
3: Well, that review's meant for something, but it ain't looking back. Fuzzy dies next to Jesus.
0: bit about that, particularly now that you've pretty firmly established yourself in the country and Americana worlds, um, you know, uh, just talk about stretching out creatively within that country Americana space.
2: Yeah, you know, it's 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 uh it's interesting because with uh, with Jaron, one of the first conversations that we had when when I first approached him about producing um, this record, was we we talked about that like you know getting out of my comfort zone a little bit and getting into some different territory sonically, um, so that was definitely you know part of the plan. But you never know what that how that's going to kind of manifest itself until you get in there and 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 do it. And um, and so in getting ready to make the record and like writing songs and, and getting all the songs together. Um, I feel like we wrote this song. I feel like we wrote Black Top White Lines maybe before we'd even talked about him producing my record. I, I don't remember exactly the timeline, but it was uh, it was me and Jaron and John Osborne uh, from Brothers Osborne wrote it on uh, on a Zoom call, much like the one that we're on. But um, so I don't remember if we were just writing to write at that point, or if we had uh, this this the album in mind. I feel like we we didn't have a any kind of plan to record or anything at that point. So so we just had that song, and then when when, when it came time to um, to think about what songs we were going to record, because when I first started wor- working on this record, I wasn't even going to make a record. I was just going to go out to Nashville and record a couple songs with Jaron and record some other songs with some other people. And that first trip out there, I recorded Blacktop, White Lines, and another song called Dead and Gone that's actually the next focus track that's coming. And I, I just loved them both, you know, and they were both just sounded like just kind of a, I don't know, just a little bit of a, like I said, like a little bit of a left turn from what I'd done before and, and, a, and a good direction to go into. So then as we were sort of like compiling more songs and, and getting ready to do the other recording sessions, because it was, you know, the meat of the album was done over the course of like three trips out to Nashville and... um. You know, I was, I was right. I wrote some stuff with Jaron. I wrote some stuff with a bunch of other people. I wrote some stuff just by myself sitting here and, and, um, and then once we got into the studio, that's where it really took off. You know, that's where the, the production side of it and all the, the dynamics and the tones and all that, all the, the sounds, you know, it's like, you could record any one of these songs like a hundred different ways, but Mm. um, that's, I think that's like, you know, that's. That's what Jaron brings to the to the album, you know, sort of like his his vision and input on it. And he was just such a such a great dude to to uh, to lean on, you know, to to make this whole thing happen. Because I really like I'm a fan of his music, yeah, and um and I and I just trusted his his opinion on things when he'd be like, you know. Let's record this song, not that song, and yeah. you know we need a song that sounds that has this kind of energy to it. So let's get something like that together. You know, it's just it's just great.
0: Did that feel kind of like a natural evolution for you musically, or was there a sense where you know it, it kind of felt like, oh man, I'm 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 kind of flipping a switch here in a way. I'm go- I'm choosing to kind of jump in a little bit of a different direction.
2: No, it felt pretty natural. You know, I mean, it's it's like I listen to all kinds of different stuff. You know, I listen to. Um, you know, on the countryside, I listen to everything from like, you know, you and I share an appreciation of the Bakersfield sound and, and that whole era and the eras that came before it and the eras that came after. I mean, I listened to like, you know, I was driving over to my studio today, listening to like the hot country playlist, you know what I mean? I listen to like just kind of country music from all eras and just music from all eras. So it's, yeah. it's, um, and when, you know, when you go in and record, like the recording process for the basic tracks is is not unlike the records I made with with Dave Cobb producing you know we're all just a bunch of musicians in a room and you're laying it down and you're kind of getting getting doing a few t- passes at a song until you get the one that, that feels right. And then I think the main difference with this record is maybe what happened after the fact. you know it's sort of the way you manipulate you know the w- what you've captured and and what you add to it and tonally and the and the mixing and the you know the, that whole side of it is maybe where things um, go into some different directions but uh but the 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 act of recording is like it's the same, essentially the same thing it's just in a room full of musicians and everybody's banging away at their at their, at their yeah. instrument you know
1: what's well, interesting that you mentioned that black top white lines was written over zoom because uh especially as you kind of talk about the production process because the sound of that song uh it seems so important to, to how it's delivered i even got some kind of vibes of like almost like a zz top eliminator type of, of totally. vibe to that song you know yeah it's, it's like the production elements came after the fact is really interesting to me because often you would start and say hey let's do something that feels like this vibe and chase a you know chase a musical production direction with a
2: song um
1: but when you're on zoom it's much harder to do
2: that well okay so here's the interesting thing and this is a trip about riding with Jaron. Um, was and this was something I'd never experienced before. The, this was the first song that I wrote with him. I wrote it, uh, me and him, and and, uh, and uh, another cat named James McNair wrote a song a little bit before that. And while we were writing it, Jaron started demoing it. You know, huh. we're all in different pl- places doing it over Zoom, and, and Jaron was at his home studio, and he started like doing the demo of it like while we were writing it, which was a trip, and it was and it was really. Cool, because all of a sudden it wasn't just you know three dudes with acoustic guitars going. What if it? What if we did that? All of a sudden it was like boom! It was a song you could like <laughs> hear it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'd never experienced that before, and and so for Blacktop White Lines, Jaron had actually demoed the riff, and mm. and he played that for us. You know, like we we're just because we were talking, to, you know, throwing ideas around. You I know, mean, what should we what should we write or whatever. And he played that, and we're like, whoa, let's write that, you know, for sure. Um, so you know, that was a demo. I'm I'm sure the demo probably is probably ultimately quite a bit different than what we captured in the studio when we went in and recorded it, but it still gave you like, um, you know, you weren't going in blind. You kind of had a sense sonically of what we're kind of looking to do.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of people know you as a rock guy. A lot of people that will be listening to this interview will associate your name with rock music. You know, you made a name for yourself in the Bay Area punk band No Use for a Name in the mid-90s before going on to join the Foo Fighters in 1999. But then when you released your 2010 album, Chris Shiflett and the Dead Peasants, I mean, there was, that was a very heavily country-influenced record. And so people had to go, oh, this guy is steeped in country. When did country music come into the picture for you as a serious influence on who you are musically?
2: Um, I mean, it really like it was like the '90s alt country stuff is where it really began for me. I mean, I always had a love of older music, mostly old rock and roll, you know, rockabilly and stuff like that. But, um, but it was when I was in No Use for a Name. It was Tony from No Use for a Name was the was the guy that turned me on to a lot of the the alt country stuff at that time, and that was really kind of the the jumping off point for me. And then I just kept going back, you know, until I kept, you know, just kept, like, trying to figure it out, you know, if you like the old 97s, well, what was it that they were listening to, you know, or, like, or even, like, bands like Social Distortion was a huge one for me, and and X, and, like, those bands would occasionally cover an old country song, and, and then you'd go find the original version of it or whatever, and, yeah, just kind of came to it through that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, you were also a founding member um, of the band Me First and the Gimme Gimmes, uh, a band that exclusively played punk covers of songs from other genres. And uh, the seventh studio record that you guys put out in 2006 was called Love Their Country. And it's punk covers of, you know, Garth Brooks and Willie and Dolly and Hank Sr. Um, Was that sort of uh, an early um, country flirtation for you in terms of... Uh, you know, to cover a song, especially to cover a song that you're, it, it exists in one genre and you're covering it in another genre, you have to sort of get into that song and pick it apart and learn how to put it together in a different way. Um, w- was that kind of formative for you in terms of your own country songwriting?
2: It really wasn't. You know, it's it's funny. It, it really wasn't because um, I mean, although at that time I was, uh, you know, I'm, I was guess I was listening to country music like, um. I don't remember having any kind of big input into the songs that we chose. And we're doing it also kind of supercharged that, you know, it's none of it was on like a telly through a deluxe reverb. There's sort of none of that, none of that sound in it. It was just like kind of like, you know, country music on 11, you know, the kind of vibe. <laughs> It was a little, you know what it was? Like you mentioned that first Dead Peasants record I did. So I did that. And that was the first time I'd ever tried to play something that wasn't loud rock music. You know, ah. And it was like these songs that I had that I'd written on my acoustic guitar and that seemed to lend themselves more to that dynamic. But then I'll, I'll tell you the real moment for me was I, I put a group together to go out and do some shows around that release. And it was so funny fucking hard like I was like why is this so hard um and I think we tried to do some country covers and I just couldn't wrap my head around why it was so fucking hard I was like I'm playing these these songs that are really kind of simple chord progressions and stuff and I just was not like I just wasn't comfortable playing in that dynamic you know because it just really wasn't where I came from it was not my comfort zone yeah um and I and and I had a I'll tell you a really like important night for me as a as a player um, and I guess ultimately as a songwriter was I was down in Austin and I was at the Continental and I was watching um, Hay Bale which if you've probably seen or heard of they're like a long running. Um, uh, country cover band down in austin that and you know i'm friends with with those those guys right uh and it's like the ultimate like the best set list of like just classic country you just go and every time they play it's like the greatest show and i was sitting there watching them i think like red volker was playing with you know just like a just shit hot band you know right um and uh and i was sitting there watching them i go I need to do this. Hmm. I need to just do this. And so I went home and that's what we did. I turned the Dead Peasants into like a country cover band, basically. And we did that second record that was all covers. I think there was one original on it. And I just had this idea, like, I got to I gotta go live in this music for a while. And even though, like, it's my version of it and it was, you know, me and my friends and none of us are, like, you know, um, polished country musicians at all. And it was pretty rough around the edges and certainly wasn't like, you know, on the level of like real country players or anything, but we just sort of did it, you know, rough and rough and ready the way we do it. And, uh, and, uh, and I did that for a few years there. And that was really the first time I ever, I just kind of forced myself to get comfortable as a guitar player playing with that tone without a lot of hair on it, you know, without too much volume, Yeah. um, without a lot of gain on it and just, uh, that was it, man. I was like, that changed a lot for me in terms of just internally being able to sort of like be comfortable on stage with a different, um, kind of different approach to it. Yeah. And then that spilled over into having a gigantic influence. Cause when you, when you're playing all the songs, we just played like all these great, you know, Merle Haggard songs and Buck and, you know, all the, basically anybody that had like a, a hit on, in country radio and then 60s was like fair game, you know, right. for the most part with the, with that sort of version of it, and we just did a lot of those songs, and um, it was cool, man. It was really fun, and it just kind of changed my my understanding of it all because it's one thing to listen to to a certain type of music, it's a whole other thing to go out and try to play it.
3: in I do anything that I want to, and I do it every time I can. i I'm a woman stealing. stealing
0: man. Oh, yeah. Not long ago, I was listening to Bruce Springsteen uh, being interviewed on Questlove's podcast. And he was talking about, you know, becoming a songwriter. And one of the things that he credited as an important aspect of his songwriting development, he's like, you know, the E Street Band was a bar band and we were playing, uh, you know, these cover songs of these great Motown and, and R&B classics. And he's like, you know, when you're playing that kind of thing as a bar band, like you got to go learn those records. You know, you got to figure out how those records are put together and then go recreate yeah. it on stage. And he's like learning how that stuff was put together and trying to recreate it is what helped me uh, learn how to be a better songwriter.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, I really wish I'd done more of that when I was young because that is such an important part of the, of your development as a, uh, as a musician and, and certainly as a songwriter, I had a similar thing, you know, in, in, in totally different genre, but around the same time, maybe a little after uh, we were doing the cover thing with dead peasants, I was playing in um, in a in a in Taylor's cover band, Chevy Metal that he that he used to do, and um, that was uh, you know pretty much exclusively classic rock, you know, and if not like you know bordering into the heavy metal era, right? Which is like the era of of rock music that I grew up with, but I was at the time I wasn't a good enough guitar player to to. Really play most of that stuff, and then music kind of changed. And and by the time I got to the point where I probably could have played some of it, I just was into other stuff. Um, so I had never sat down and tried to figure out how to play Van Halen songs and mm. uh, Motley Crue songs and whatever you know, just stuff from from that era. Much less all the old like you know we do like some ZZ Top and this and that, and that was really helpful too from a songwriting perspective. You know, yeah, to yeah. see kind of open up the hood and see what made those songs tick.
1: You know, when, when you come up through bands and punk bands and rock bands, there's, you know, such a collaborative environment. So much happens in the space of playing shows and being in the rehearsal room and sound checks and all that kind of stuff. So much creation could happen in those places. And there's also this thing, though, where there's kind of a safety personally because the band name is one thing and your own name is another. And then to come out now and say, OK, I'm going to make this music under my name. And it's there's there's like a vulnerability to doing that. But even in the co-writing space, you know, there's a way to kind of create the band again. You get the co-writers together. There's a collaborative experience. Nashville is such a co-writing town. But even your last totally. couple singles, Long, Long Year and Born and Raised, these are songs that are written solo. Um, you continue to kind of push yeah. yourself into those vulnerable spaces. I'd like to hear some about, like, what you love and appreciate about co-writing
2: and then what you love and appreciate about writing songs on your own. Well, it's it's interesting, you know, because I do put out my, my records just under my name. And I... You know, I, I never wanted to do that before. Um, I always wanted it to at least have like the the veneer of it being a band. But the reality is, it's like it's freaking impossible to keep a band together when it's like a side band. You yeah. know what I mean? It just doesn't work. I've tried it a million times over the years. So eventually, I just started putting them out under my name, um, which is fine. Which is, but it's also a little ironic because, like, really, there's nothing solo about it. You know, I mean, it's so dependent on the other musicians in the room and even if you didn't write the song with them they're the ones putting life into it um and the producer and the engineer and the guy that mixes it and like i just you know it really is like a a super collaborative effort to make these records and i like the the uh i like both sides of the songwriting thing i like sitting in my in my um in my studio and just like woodshedding on an idea and writing the lyrics and rewriting and editing and writing more and all that sort of thing until I get it where I want it to be. But a lot of the time I feel like, you know, um, I'll have an idea that, uh, that I can only take so far. And I, I've rarely have been disappointed in, in the outcome of a, of a co-write, you know? Um, and I haven't done a ton of it. I mean, I never lived in Nashville. I've never been a music or a songwriter. It's not like something I have the discipline to sit down and do every single day or whatever, um, like a lot of those cats do. Who, and you got to hand it to to those folks that have like songwriting muscles that are that strong. You know, yeah. that's really I think pretty impressive to be able to go go to the well over and over all the time. Um, but in with the limited amount that I've done it, I, I enjoy I enjoy it a lot. Um, it always seems to take. A song idea that I might have into a into a better place, um, and you know I feel like I can only sort of get my own ideas so far sometimes. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes you you have a song that that you, you write your just by yourself, but then there's still a huge collaboration, you know, getting it recorded. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of these songs on 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 my new record are are songs I just you know technically wrote by myself, but like they would have never sounded the way that they wound up sounding without, you know, Charlie Warsham and Jaron Johnston and, and, you know, Jerry Rowe or whoever, you know, it was in the room playing and throwing ideas around.
0: Well, you know, when we start seeing your name as a songwriter really is after you joined Foo Fighters and um, you know, the first album, obviously, that you played on was one by one in 2002. Uh, I can't believe that's been over 20 years. That's like <laughs> blowing crazy. my mind. Um, but you know, that's a situation where um, most of the songs in that band context are credited to all the members of the band. So nobody really knows like who brings in what or who contributes what. It's very much a um, you know a, a group kind of dynamic. But of course, that record you know had songs like "All My Life" and "Times Like These." It
3: sounds like it's times like these, you give and give again. It's times like these, you earn love again. It's times like these, time and time again.
0: You're kind of coming into a situation where, you know, this band as an entity is already a thing there's already been success it already exists and here you're walking in not only as a guitar player but also as a contributor to uh the creative process talk a, a bit about just um if that was a, a pressurized thing or, or how you experienced that as as someone bringing your songwriting ideas to the table
2: well it's it's not really that kind of situation in foos you know i mean in in foo fighters it's really dave's writing the songs And, um, and then, and he will usually like demo, make some demos and stuff. And then we'll, and then we'll kind of work on it as a band after the, after the fact. But, um, so it's not a situation where like I'm bringing in, here's this song that I wrote and it goes like this, yada, yada, you know, I grew up in a West coast town or what, you know, it's, it's, it's not that kind of situation. Um, it's more of like, you know, the, the collaboration is sort of like, uh, you know, rehearsing, doing pre-production and, and, and then whatever, you know, winds up happening in the studio.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's a situation where he's kind of driving the train and you guys are bringing in, you know, arrangement stuff and maybe throwing in some licks and, and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting. It's similar to when I was in No Use for a Name and, um, in No Use, Tony, the singer wrote all those songs and then he would bring them in and then we would kind of like, help put them together a, a little bit and like arrange them and stuff. But it wasn't like we were writing them, you know yeah. what I mean? It was yeah. like, um, and it wasn't until the end of my time in no use that, um, that I remember I, I I gave Tony some, uh, made some like, I bought like a four track or something and made some instrumental demos of some song ideas. And I think some of those songs actually wound up on that first Jackson United record that I did. And that was the first time, and it was actually the bass player for No Use for a Name. I remember, um, at the time was like, man, you should try writing songs. Like, you're always, like, coming up with little riffs and stuff. You know, you should, you should try to, like, sit down and write some songs. And I was in my, like, you know, mid to late 20s by then. I'd never been the songwriter in any band I was ever in. I was always, you know, I wrote some songs here and there over the years, but they were really, like, ridiculously bad. (laughs) Um... Classics like uh, Bedrock Bop. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> you know. So um, and, and I don't know. I just never really had the the confidence or something. I and that and then that period was when I first started really going like, yeah, this is this it's actually fun to write songs. And then the the first time I ever like recorded a bunch of my own songs was that first Jackson United record that I did, and that was a that was kind of like trying to learn how to be a songwriter on the fly Mm. you know Mm. yeah and i remember like going in and recorded like just a ton i don't even remember we must have recorded 14 or 15 songs for that record and i don't think i had lyrics written for most of it so i had all this music in the can and i just remember like just like kind of frantically trying to write lyrics and come up with melodies and like you'd have these songs that you'd already recorded that you realize like you can't sing the chorus because it's too high, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) And just trying to piece it all together, you know, like, uh, it's just like just kind of flailing in the dark trying to, you know, and and sort of over the course of doing that here and there, you just kind of realize not only what works, but kind of like what works for you. Right. You know?
1: You know, um, there are certain songs you you can hear different influences at times. Like I I was thinking of a song like, you know, um, uh, Sticks and Stones. Some of the things on West Coast Town that even has like some stonesy kind of feels to them. And and when the stones kind of lean into some country things as well.
3: Throw your bottles, sticks and stones.
2: If you really want to split hairs, the Stones were for sure the thing that got me into country music, Uh, really. But I mean, because they're like my first love when I was like a baby, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, to, to, for me to sit down and try to figure out how to play a bunch of Keith Richards stuff, I'd, I'd have to explore some open tunings, right? Yeah. And, and you think about the way tunings can influence the way a riff sounds or the way something feels. Do you go to those type of things when you're writing? I want to try a different tuning on this or a different guitar.
2: Where do you find inspiration as a guitarist that leads you into the things you write? I mean, honestly, nowadays, it's more often than not I'm sitting on my couch at home and I'm strumming an acoustic guitar and I'm watching ESPN FC or something <laughs> and, um, and, and I'll just be noodling around not thinking and I'll just kind of stumble into something mm. and go like, ooh, that sounds kind of cool. I should, I'll record that. Um, that's probably it's... But I know what you mean. Like, There are times when you get a new guitar... And that will, and for whatever reason, you just get that little magic with it. And you just, you can sit there and you bang out a bunch of riffs that day, you know? Because you just were like, woo I got a Firebird! Fuck yeah, finally! Totally. Um, Or whatever it is, you know? And um, I I don't really play a lot in open tunings and all that sort of thing. Um, I have done that a little bit here and there, and it's definitely good for that too, although I am not a big fan of, of having to then it just, you know what it means for a, a club tour? It means I got to bring another guitar or two. <laughs> right, right, so, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I've had it, I've had it where like I'll record a song in an open tuning, but I didn't record the guitar solo in an open tuning. And yeah. then you're like, Oh fuck. Now what? <laughs> um, right. So it's more trouble than it's worth. You know, right. if my solo, if my solo, band ever becomes like you know um you know if we get to like a, a certain level where we can afford to bring a couple extra guitars then then i'm all in yeah um i, I need to try some of that uh espn writing so that when my wife walks in i can be like i'm working oh yeah exactly <laughs> yeah honey whoa don't disturb me i'm watching my football highlights <laughs> Totally, i'm coming I'm up working. with the with the rent
0: um well, you mentioned Jackson United, which was kind of your first uh, side project. And that was really like, you know, more of a punk band. And coming back to that first uh, Chris Shifflin and the Dead Peasants record from 2010, you know, I listened to to that and I listened to songs like Helsinki or Get Along. And, you know, they've, they've got um, country influence. They still have a little punk attitude, too. Um, but the other element that I hear on that record um, that... Uh, we haven't really talked about is kind of that birds, heartbreakers kind of jangle, mm. um, you know, pop rock thing.
3: Set from the get go.
2: Oh, yeah, huge man. you know, I mean, I'm a Southern California native, so you know that music was just everywhere when I was growing up um and of course, I think for anybody, any guitar player in my age range, you know you can't discount Mike Campbell, you know, right. just a massive, massive influence, but you know my brother my brother Mike had some birds records growing up. I didn't get hip to the later birds records with like Clarence White and all that stuff until quite a bit later um i didn't know about that whole thing but like the the sort of jangly 12 string 60s pop version of the birds definitely um knew those songs um yeah but yeah like you know all that great early tom petty stuff you know here comes my girl all that stuff just the the jangle in that and you you know you hear a lot of of that in bands like you know bands that i loved a lot like sugar and um i don't know a lot of the 80s 90s alt-rock poppier side of alt-rock I think had a lot of that in there yeah for yeah. sure
0: um well speaking of Mike Campbell he has been a guest on your walking the floor podcast which you launched in 2013 yeah. and it's obvious we have a lot of overlap in musical tastes a lot of the folks that have been on your podcast have been on ours you know Steve Earle Robbie Falks Jim Lauderdale, Lucinda Williams, Rodney Crowell, Dave Alvin, Vince Gill. I mean, on and on. Even Red Simpson, I think, has been on both our podcasts, which might be Red Whoa. Simpson's only two podcasts. You interviewed Red Simpson?
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Cool. So, I, um, I thought I was the only podcaster that had ever interviewed him <laughs> because when I interviewed him, um, I, I'm pretty sure he thought he was being interviewed for the radio. Right, I don't know if the like it was pretty. It he. he, I think he was my very first interview, maybe. Yeah, that was the the first first one you launched. Yeah, and like I and podcasting was not as well known of a thing, and and he was pretty old dude by the time I I interviewed him. Yeah, so I I remember him like. I think he, I just, and I wasn't going to correct him. Right, (laughs) right, right, right.
0: (laughs) Uh, You wouldn't have been able to explain it to him. I actually produced the Bear Family Records uh, box set, the Red Simpson box set. Mm. Um, So I've been very steeped in in Red Simpson.
2: I have that box set.
0: Oh, cool. Nice. Um, So you're one of the 10 people. Um, (laughs) uh, But I wanted to ask about your podcast because, you know, you've had these incredible conversations and you know between your work in Foo Fighters and your solo stuff and I mean you're obviously a busy guy and you kind of see like musicians kind of come and go with the podcast thing like they think oh this will be cool especially during the pandemic you know I'll do this for a minute and then you know it kind of drifts away but you're you're very much like committed to to this podcast it has been going for years um and I'm curious for you just as someone who is talking to a lot of different artists and kind of picking the brains regularly of people um, who are obviously artists that, that you admire, how has that kind of shaped you? I mean, obviously you are an interviewer in that context, but you're walking away from these conversations and making music. Like in what ways has that podcast fed your musical creativity?
2: Well, I mean, I've, I've, um, collaborated with a fair number of people I've interviewed I mean that's that's really one of the one of the coolest upsides to doing it um all these years is just getting to meet all these folks you know like when when else are you gonna have a a reason to call up Steve Earle and just talk pick his brain for an hour you know that's right. that's been one of the one of the great things of, about it um and I've I've managed to like you know like kind of made some real friendships out of with some of those uh with some of the people that I've that I've interviewed over the years, which has been super fun. Um, you know, I always like to ask people about songwriting. I, I, I and I've said this before. I think the the biggest thing that I've learned about songwriting from interviewing all these great songwriters is that no one can explain how songwriting works. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. so it's just um, you know there are some basic elements to it that are probably consistent through for a lot of people. But um, I think it really comes down to like you just got to put your ideas down on paper and you know, and, 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 and just grind it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause there is no magic, uh, little trick to it. You right. know?
0: No magic equation. Now, were you able yeah. to, uh, were you able to get Steve to talk about himself? Cause I know he doesn't like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> That's
2: funny. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I've, I've actually interviewed, uh, Steve twice. And, um, And I remember the first time I interviewed him was in New York City, and um, I didn't have a really good setup for my podcast, and I just had these cheap little, I don't even remember what they were, these kind of crummy little mics. Right. And I would get into all kinds of um, sonic problems with them. And I, I remember the thing that would cut through the loudest in that first Steve Earle interview that I did was the jangle of his bracelets. Uh, it, yeah, it's exactly the like, same thing happened. What to did us. I do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> we
0: well we we interviewed Steve in person in a hotel room on the exact mics that you and us are using right now, and the exact same yeah. thing happened because he kept talking with his hands the whole time. And so even yeah. on even on good mics, uh, it's that's it's the bracelet problem. And I was
2: like, you tell him yeah, to that's take right. them off. I'm not I'm not going to be the guy. I to tell Steve yeah. Earl to next time bracelet. I interview Steve Earl, I'm going to ask. I'm going to gaff his bracelets. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Put on this sweater. Yeah. Uh, if, if we ever get Stevie right. Nick,
2: we're we'll probably going to do the same thing. Uh, <laughs>
1: um.
0: Well, in 2014, uh, Foo Fighters released the Sonic Highways album, and and there are eight tracks on that record. Each one is recorded in a in a different location around the country. But the song Congregation was done in in Nashville and features Zach Brown. I've been throwing nice to see just where. Obviously, you guys were going around to these different sort of iconic locations and soaking up the vibe. Um, but I, this also kind of corresponds with your uh, deep dive into country music. And this is, you know, not too long after, you know, you were out with the dead peasants, you know, after you did the All Hat and No Cattle record. So you're, you're very much getting like steeped in country at this point. Talk about that uh, kind of Nashville experience and, and what that meant for you. It's kind of like your worlds were kind of coming together there.
2: Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because I had never spent much time in Nashville. When I was in No Use For Name, we never played Nashville ever. Not one time, I don't think. Huh. Um, and uh, and even in Foo Fighters, for a long time, we would always play Memphis, but not Nashville. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why exactly. But um, I had never spent really much of any time there uh, until we went out there for Sonic Highways. And we were there for about a week. Um, and I was, yeah, I just soaked it all up, man. It was, it was really cool, just to bring it really full circle. That week that we were there doing that, I went to a Dirks Bentley record release listening party, and that was where I met Jaron Johnston at oh, that wow. party because I <laughs> believe he had co-written some of the songs on on I think it was that Black record. I think was it was that one. Right. Um, and uh, I yeah, and I remember he was there, and and I met him there, and yeah, that was uh that was eventually led to this album that we're talking about today. Well, wow. I'll tell you an interesting um, thing that happened that week too that that I never forget. Um, one of the guys, the whole you know, because we're at you know Monument Studios, it uh, or you know it wasn't called Monument anymore at that point. It was Zach's place. And there was, you know, the the, the folks that work there, there's a whole crew of people that work there. And I remember um, one night, one of them, we we're talking about music or whatever, he said, you want to see why it's so hard to make it in Nashville? He goes, go down to Robert's Western World and go check out the kid that's playing in the cover band down there. And um, I, I don't remember what year that was, but it was a while ago now. I mean, it must have been, what, 10 years ago or something we made that record? It was, it was a yeah. minute ago. So I went down to Robert's Western World that night and there's the cover band was playing and the kid on stage was this, was this, he, I mean, he looked like he was 14 or something and he was red hair, um, playing a green Telecaster and just fucking lighting it up. <laughs> and that kid was Daniel Donato. Huh. Um, who I, I, don't know if you're familiar with, with his playing, but he's like, uh, just a Telecaster, you know, nut. Yeah. Um, and i and and he was like a teenager you know i don't think he was 14 but he was i he might not have even been 18 you know what wow. i mean he was like a kid and just flying and i went up to him after their set and i introduced myself and i said hey man do you ever you ever teach guitar lessons and he was like yeah i go i'd love to take a lesson from you while i'm here and he came by the studio like the next day and gave me a gave me a lesson and that's how i got to know Daniel, wow. friends with him ever since, but yeah. yeah, he's, you know, that, and that really like, you know, it's that thing in Nashville, like the, you know, they say like the guy that parks your car can play, is a better guitar player yeah. than you, you know, it's like, it's <laughs> right. a, a, everybody there seems to be like a really deep, you know, high level musician.
0: Oh yeah. It's crazy. Even though Paul and I have both lived in LA for more than 20 years, uh, we both grew up in Nashville, so very. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So every you know waiter at every restaurant we ate at his kids. <laughs> you know, it's all everybody had their demo tape in their back pocket.
1: Well, it's it's funny you, you, you mentioned that thing about not playing Nashville. Like, yeah, we'd play Memphis, we wouldn't play Nashville. It kind of struck a nerve because <laughs> growing up there, that was that was always the thing. Like, uh, you know, we graduated high school in 1994, and you know there were these bands. You know, we wanted to see Pearl Jam, and we wanted to see REM. And you'd have to go to Atlanta. Right. Yeah, why, but
2: why was that? It has to well, be like a, a venue issue or yeah, something. Yeah, I mean, we you know had 328 I mean? Performance
1: weird. Hall. We had 328 and we had Exit In. Yeah, those so, are too small. And then you had the Starwood Amphitheater, which was out kind of, you know, on the edge of town. And that was a little bit more where you'd see like Steve Miller Band. Like that, it wasn't right. like for current, you know, rock shows. So, you know, yeah, you have to go to Atlanta or you maybe go to Memphis. And I remember there were two huge shows that came to Nashville in the 90s. It was Pink Floyd which I think would have been the division bell record. And they put like plywood across the football field in Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. I remember that. (laughs) And then I think McCartney did the same thing. And, and those were the the only two times that I remember. And which is crazy. You think that Nashville, you would think that it would
2: be a place that people would stop and come through, but it just never was. Yeah. It's, it's trip. I think in the no use days, um, it probably had something to do with maybe there not being an all-ages venue because right. we had like a hard, you know, most punk rock bands in that scene at that time, you had the, like a hard line rule that you had to play all-ages venues. And, you know, the reason being like because our fan base were all like 14, 15, 16-year-old totally. kids. Yeah. <laughs> and it wouldn't have made sense to play bars. But it definitely like it, um, it sort of narrowed the range of yeah. where you could play at. You yeah, know?
0: yeah. Um, well, we kind of touched on the West Coast town, uh, record that you put out in 2017. And that was the first one that was fully just Chris Shiflet, no dead peasants, just your name, nothing else to, uh, nothing else to hide behind. Just you. Um, n- n-
2: none of those dead peasants dragging me down. <laughs> That's right.
0: Finally, you could shine.
2: <laughs> yeah, man. Uh,
0: but then the follow-up record, Hard Lessons. Um, you know, both those records were produced by Dave Cobb, who's you know just amazing. Um, but yeah. the thing that's different about Hard Lessons is that while most of the songs were written solo, you did have a few co-writes on there. You, we see names like Kendall Marvel and Elizabeth Cook kind of popping up in there, and yeah, um, you know, you, you sort of Aaron Ratier. Yeah, is, he's uh, he's on, the there, songs on there on there several too, times. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you're talking about, we kind of talked about writing within a band situation and you said you hadn't done a ton of like kind of the Nashville co-writing thing, but that's the first time we see you kind of bringing in you know, uh, consistently bringing in outside people on a record to to collaborate with. So given that this was not a band situation and this was more of a traditional, you know, collaboration, in what ways did, did kind of working with some other people uh, influence the, you know, the final product, so to speak, in terms of, of that album?
2: Oh, big way. Um, yeah, so leading up to West Coast Town, I think I co-wrote a few of those songs, well, I know I co-wrote a few of those songs with my friend Brian Whelan here in L.A., but in getting ready to go out there, I remember Dave Cobb, um, who also has a publishing company, and so he's got a bunch of writers, you know, that that he works with on with, through that, and, and he was like, hey, you should come out here a few days early and write with a couple of my guys, you know, I was like, cool, you know, I'd never done that before. So I went out there early, and I had brought, like, I don't know, Twelve or thirteen songs with me, something like that. You know, more than enough to to make the record. Um, but I remember I, I got together with um, with Aaron Retier for like three days or something leading into making that record. And we wrote a bunch of songs, and then I didn't cut any of them on that record because I think I just had my mind my heart set on this group of songs that were that ultimately were made up that record. But um, but that really was like the first time I'd ever done that. Um, and some of those songs wound up on the next record. And then I actually went back out and wrote some more with him leading up to, to making Hard Lessons. But um, but that did kind of open up that world to me. And working with Aaron, who's a, you know, he's a great songwriter. Uh, definitely just just being in the room with with a writer like that, you know, like... Just kind of watching what he does, and and just kind of like just little things like how he would sort of like check the words and stuff, and just concepts that seem so obvious, but I'd never thought about before. Like, you know, you just use that word like two lines ago. Like maybe use a different word right there. You know, yeah. you just just little things like that. You know, little details. Yeah. Um, and thinking about, you know, it was only kind of leading up to making that record that the that the idea. Of like you know, it does. Is is your chorus supported by your verses? That sort, of, those sort of like songwriting. I just never thought of before. I would just write words. You know, yeah. these sound good. This is what's coming out of me. Whatever. <laughs> and I started to be a little more critical with it. You know, and 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 it's it's not like every song I write is going to be a story song, but I did kind of try to go down that lane a little more, you know, and have a little bit more of that approach to it. You know, is there, is there, the, is there, it, just the chorus, you know, represent the sort of like sum of what I'm getting to here, all that kind of
3: stuff.
1: But I always think that the more the more you sort of learn about those particulars, it even enhances the way you listen to music. You know, you go back and find the stuff that even that you loved before and find a new layer to love about it because you're like, oh, my God, look at look at how they crafted this. Now that I know even more up close what that craft is about, you know.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you start to recognize like songs that you were really drawn to from, you know, 30, 40 years ago or or have a lot of that in it, you yeah. know. Some of the, you know, stuff that isn't country at all, you know, Hanoi rocks, you know, stuff like that. That like, you're like, Oh, right. The reason that one always fucking got me is because it's telling this story, you know, and there's a, it leads to something, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Speaking of, you know, spanning genres, I think we have uh, an appreciation for a lot of different music on this show. And, and, you know, I hear what you're saying about Foo Fighters really being Dave's, uh thing um but then you know the fact that you are a credited writer on a song like best of you ah! And Prince comes and covers that at the Super Bowl. If that was me, I would get a t-shirt made that said, Prince covered a song that I'm a writer on.
2: <laughs> I, I'll, you, know, you want to hear something funny about, about that is I remember that year, um, i like to be perfectly honest, I don't follow football, like American football. Um, right. I'm a soccer fan. Yeah. Don't want to offend anybody but uh, that is just the truth. So I uh, I went to a Super Bowl party that uh, my friend was having and I was sitting there at this party and I'm watching watching the game or whatever and then the halftime show comes on and Prince comes out and starts playing and when he got to that part part of the thing, I had the weirdest like we're all sitting there watching it and I'm and it, I can't even explain it. It's like I didn't recognize it as our song. Huh. For a while, and I'm watching it going like, wait, like something, like I just could recognize that something felt different, but I couldn't put my finger on it, and then finally realize, oh my God, he's fucking covering our song. Right. What (laughs) the fuck? Um... And then little by little, like everybody in the room kind of, dude, he's, he's doing a Foo Fighter song. What the fuck? I was like, <laughs> I know. Um, but it was so surreal that it, like it just I, like. I, I can't believe that was I, a surprise. It took I can't believe longer it. than you would think to realize what was going on. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you're a kid and you see your teacher in the grocery store and it's like so <laughs> out of context, you're like, wait, I wasn't yeah. expecting this. It's, it's exactly, exactly yeah. like that. It's exactly <laughs> like that. Same
1: level of excitement as seeing your teacher in the grocery store. Exact same feeling. Yeah. yeah. Same so
0: basically feeling. what I'm saying is we all know what it feels like yeah. to have friends. Yeah, exactly. We cover know exactly us. what it feels like. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. You know, I, a question that I've been thinking of since since kind of the very beginning of the conversation when when you mentioned it's it's actually one of my favorite concepts about listening to music how listening to one band leads you to another band, leads you to another band. You know yeah. there's this Peeling of the onion, and I think you know. I remember Scott and I were growing up. the The first two Lenny Kravitz records were were really big deals to us, ninety and ninety one, and it Lenny kind of led us to well Led Zeppelin and Al Green at the same time. You know, and mm-hmm. then you found ourselves listening to like Sly Stone, and and then I remember yeah. the Black Crows had covered Otis Redding. They, they came out with that hard to handle cover, and it was like the opening a door to, yeah. to Otis Redding for me, kind of in a in a more fun way than Michael Bolton did at, <laughs> at the same time. Um, but you know, you know, you were talking about you know here in Whiskey Town and like seeing you know or Wilco and you know digging back into what those influences were. If someone comes to your music, what would make you the happiest to know? that they listened to Chris Shiflet, and it led them to what?
2: Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, that's kind of a tough one, because, you know, like we talked about, like, you know, my biggest influences are probably kind of obvious, you know? <laughs> um I mean, it of course you'd be like you'd you'd want people to go, wow, that song West Coast Town, that sounds like Merle Haggard, but like it it doesn't. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, if, if if it ever actually like you know if, if somebody ever drew that line, I'd be like, great, it all was worth it. <laughs> right, right. It's, you know, it's 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 tough. You know, like yeah, because I think like with each with each record, like there's 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 things on my records that I. Like where I know I'm biting something from mm. something that is like the world nobody would ever put it together. Yeah, nobody. You right. know what I mean? Um, and that, my friends, is the joy of making music, <laughs> is because it really is. A, it re- really is like yeah. a, a stew in that sense. That you know, you take you can take an Ace Frehley lick and play it over some country music, and and that influence won't be obvious to people. Sure, It's yeah. obvious to me, and maybe right. it's other, obvious to a handful of people, but like, you know. It's not, a, people it's didn't even hear it when there. it happened in Poison. So, you Exactly, yeah.
0: Well, and kind of in the same vein, I mean, being a guy who very much comes out of the punk and the hard rock world, have you found yourself kind of becoming a, de facto ambassador for country music in that people that you're friends with or people that you hang out with kind of like, man, what's, what's this all about? I mean, have you found yourself kind of becoming an educator in a way?
2: Um, I mean, not so it's, it's a, maybe here and there, you know, um, country music is a, is a, is a really, I mean, this is a strange thing to say because country music is, is obviously gigantic and like, you know, it's not like it's some niche genre or something right. but to people who aren't fans of country music especially in like rock and roll circles people really don't understand country music right and like people don't don't like i encounter people on the rock side of things who um just have no appreciation of sort of the depth of, yeah, of like right. the artistry of of country music and the and the and the, like it's country music is all you know the most fucking cheesy element of hee ha or something to right. to a lot of people to people yeah. that aren't country music fans right um and it's and and i find that i've always found that to be very strange you yeah. know yeah yeah um so I mean, I hear from all, I see a lot of people post on like, you know, people I don't know or whatever post on social media stuff, you know, like, oh, your podcast turned me on to this artist or the, you know, this artist or something like that. So yeah. that's cool, you know, because I figure probably a lot of people listening to my podcast don't, aren't listening because they, you know, they just know me from rock and roll or whatever. And, yeah. and that's cool. So if that, you know, if that winds up turning people on to... To um to uh, somebody that they weren't familiar with before, that's all good, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's funny, man. Like every all my country music friends and like musician friends and stuff like have a I think a deeper appreciation of rock music than like mm. a lot of my rock music friends have going the other way. <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So here you are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Carrying the banner for country music. I like it. That's awesome.
2: (laughs) There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The upcoming album, Lost at Sea, we want to encourage our listeners to keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with us about your entire career and your development
2: as a writer. This has been great. Awesome, man. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, man. Thank you, guys.
1: Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, Please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit p-a-t-r-e-o-n
1: ncom com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. Oh,